0: Well, good morning, everyone. Happy Resurrection Day. Our key scripture this morning comes from John chapter 12, so if you have your Bibles, I invite you to open up there. Uh, John chapter 12, starting in verse 23. Jesus was talking to uh, some of his disciples that day, and this is what he told them. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. In our family, uh, we experienced uh, a, a family death for the first time a couple years ago when we came home from Thanksgiving and our hamster curry was dead. I know, it was very sad. And we got home late at night, and it was cold in the house, and we're putting everything away, and everybody's you know going upstairs and all this and and I realized that I haven't heard Curry uh, running on his little wheel, so I go over to check and Curry's there, but he's not moving or doing anything else um, so I, you know i i I'm not real familiar with dead things, uh, so I kind of kept my distance from him a little bit, tried to give him space here. I don't want to crowd him and uh but we figured out that that He was gone, but we didn't want to tell the kids yet. So we we took him out, and I put him in the garage in his cage and just sat him on top of something, (laughs) sat the cage on top of something in the garage, and that's where Curry sat for a while. And um, later that night, Nisha was on her phone, and I don't know if she was Googling dead hamsters, but she says, "Uh, honey, did you know that sometimes hamsters are just hibernating? And I said... No, I was unaware of that. And she said, yeah, Curry may still be alive. <laughs> so I got a stick, <laughs> and, I started, and, I, and I poked Curry a little bit. And long story short, uh, Curry was, in fact, dead. <clears throat> there are very few things in our lives that uh, are as certain as death. I'm not dead yet. I'm only mostly dead. But once you're gone, you're gone. Right? Once you're gone, you're gone. Death is the end of things. The last hurrah, the final note to the song, the fat lady is sung, it's time to pack it in and go home. And yet Jesus here tells us something that is challenging for us to wrap our minds around. And what he says to us is this. He says something must die in order for there to be more life. And on the surface, this is an idea that seems a little bit difficult for us to grasp. Because on one hand, this idea goes against everything that we know. It violates, to a degree, our sense, our understanding of common sense. Because for us, life is the most valuable thing, and we seek to live our lives to the fullest extent. We, we cling to life with every fiber of our strength. And death, on the other hand, is the monster that steals away our life. It is a thing that we are constantly running from, and trying to get away from and avoiding at all costs. But Jesus says something here where it sounds the opposite. Something must die in order for there to be life. So what does Jesus know that we don't know? Well, a lot, actually. But here's the thing. The world is actually designed so that on a regular basis, death brings new life. On a regular basis, one article states that decomposition, the death of one thing and its rotting and breaking down, isn't just the end of everything, it is also the start, because without decay, none of us would exist. He says life, with, life would end, this is a funny statement here, life would end without rot, What he says, decomposition releases the chemicals that are critical for life. The most important thing recycled by rot is the element carbon, and this chemical element is the physical basis of all life on earth. After death, decomposition releases carbon into the air, soil, and water, and living things capture this carbon, and when they capture that carbon, guess what they do? They create new life. From what? From death. So maybe Jesus isn't so crazy. But what is it that he says us here? He says, unless a grain of wheat, one single grain falls and is buried into the ground where it actually dies, it will not become a new blade or stalk of wheat that has more and more wheat on it. And Jesus here was talking about himself because he understood what his death meant. That by him going to die that this one death would generate new life for all. That one death would generate new life for all. And this death doesn't just lead to new life, it leads to abundant life. One dies and allows for new life for many. And church, we are here to celebrate something amazing today. And that is this, that Jesus Christ has redefined the meaning of life and death. Mm -hmm. Jesus Christ has redefined the meaning of life and death. And death is not the end. In fact, it's the beginning. Uh, sure. All right, time to dismiss our kids. If you have uh, a kid this morning that fits into one of those categories, <laughs> you can uh, send them either upstairs or to the back hallway for children's church. Everyone else is stuck with me. <clears throat> There are a lot of kids here today. We're close. Hold on. Almost there. Okay, talk amongst yourselves. I like Easter because... back in action. Um, Probably most of you have some sort of uh, something that gets on your nerves every now and then. Um, Please do not look at someone in the room or blurt a name out loud because that's just mean and today's Easter Sunday and we're nice on Easter Sunday. Uh, But some of you, you know, there's there's something. We all have pet peeves. We all have something that kind of gets on my nerves and... uh, Cheryl Ogle, ladies and gentlemen. She's like a ninja. You just never even know she's there. (laughs) If you have never been to church with us before, this is what we're like. So just get used to it. Just get used to it. Uh, For me, there are several pet peeves that I have, but one of them that always gets on my nerves is when I... um, I go to something, and I expect something to be inside that something, and yet I find that that something is empty. For example, I've made my coffee in the morning, and I open the refrigerator, and I reach in and get out the the French vanilla coffee creamer, and I open it up, and I hold it like this over my coffee cup, and there is a drip. Right? Oh, I want to shake my fist to the heavens. Uh, Or perhaps these are just things that happen in my house. They probably don't happen in any of your house. Uh, I I get the box of cereal out, and it feels a little light. But I've been thinking for the past, like, hour about eating this cereal. And I open up the box, and there's, like, three Cheerios left. But the box was in the pantry. Uh, Or, you know, the soap in the shower. But here's the worst one. Um, Toilet paper in the paper dispenser. Yes, we have all been there at one time or another. And as I was sort of, you probably guessed, in our house, amongst the four of us, we are really good at leaving just enough of something to think, oh, there might be enough in there for what it is that I need. But this whole idea of, uh, you know, putting back, uh, the cereal box with like three Cheerios in it or putting back the milk with like a thimble of milk in it. Like this is what happens in my house on a regular basis. I don't like expecting there to be something inside of whatever it is and then opening up and finding out that it's empty. I don't like it. Now I'm going to define for you this morning the word empty. Empty. Uh, You may think you know what it means, but maybe you're going to learn something new this morning. Uh, Here is what the word empty means, okay? Uh, Containing nothing, not filled or occupied. Here are some other words you could use. Vacant, unoccupied, uninhabited, untenanted, clear, free, bare, desolate, deserted, or abandoned. All of those words can communicate the idea of being empty. But there's more. Oh, yes, my friends, there's more. Empty can also mean lacking meaning or sincerity. And here are some other words that go with this. Meaningless, aimless, worthless, useless, idle, vain, insubstantial, ineffective, and ineffectual. Why you would mean ineffective and ineffectual, well, there you go. And the last definition is having no meaning or purpose. So that is what empty mean which makes me think I have drastically underappreciated the word empty. There is a lot more to it than whatever I've given it credit for before, but I also realize this after looking through all those words, the word empty to me is kind of a bad word. It's not a word that I like. And the word empty gets even worse when you change and add a few letters to it, because a word that I really don't like at all is the word emptiness. Emptiness is something that I don't like to experience. A container that is left empty of its contents. And emptiness is an experience that none of us really want to have, and yet emptiness is one that can manifest itself in a hundred different ways throughout our lives. For example, what you all thought I said just a few moments ago, the empty nest, where you've watched someone grow up in this place and they are no longer there. Or perhaps the empty bed where someone you love used to sleep or the empty seat at a table where a family used to sit together or I know for me, the empty heart that has a hole in it that everything just seemed to leak out of. And and there's nothing for me to put back in to that place. And maybe like me, You have experienced emptiness, and you know what emptiness feels like, and I have been to that place in my own life where nothing in the world made sense to me anymore, where I couldn't find any answers, where even my very sense of self and who I was and what I wanted to be about seemed to be lost forever. And the only word that I can come up with to describe to you if you haven't been to that place what that feels like is emptiness another word that i like which is right next to it is is hollow i felt hollow like there was nothing inside of me anymore now i know through my own experience whether it's at the refrigerator or whether it's things that I've gone through in my life, I know that there is often not very much good about the word empty. And I could probably do without it. The tomb was empty. And the very first emotion that the empty tomb brought to those who witnessed it that day was overwhelming, indescribable panic. And despair. We're going to look at John chapter twenty this morning. It's where we'll be all morning, so if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn over there. John chapter twenty, verses one through ten. And this is this is how it all went down, according to John. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed, but note verse 9, please. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Sometimes it takes your mind a few moments between your eyes and your brain, to realize what it is that you're seeing or what it is that you're not seeing. I used to have a motorcycle uh, when I lived, bought it when I lived here the first time as a youth minister, and um, I rode it like five times. It was an amazing experience. And, but uh, when, we, when we moved to Antioch, I, I parked the motorcycle in the garage. and we could park a car in the garage, we had the motorcycle, and it was sitting in front of the refrigerator, and one morning, uh, one Saturday morning, I got up, I was getting you know, breakfast, and someone had left a little bit of milk in the milk, and there was not enough, so I went out to the garage fridge to get more milk, and so I go out there, and I'm, you know, I'm opening the door, and I'm dead, and there's a pair of shoes over here, and I'm not sure why they're there, and, but I'm like, okay, I'm getting my milk, I'm going back inside, and I walk into the kitchen, and I set the milk down, and it's like all of a sudden, my brain realized what I did not see. The motorcycle was gone, it was gone, and I had walked through the space more than once where it sat before I realized it wasn't there anymore, okay? Now, yes, I'm a weirdo, but number two, um, we need to. You, I want you to keep this in the back of your mind because it's relevant to us this morning, okay? Sometimes it takes our brains a long time to adjust to what we are seeing or not seeing, Okay, that's important because we're going to have a moment like this in just a moment. But it's difficult then for us to even begin to comprehend what Mary felt when she walked into the tomb that day and there was no body. Now, as she walked up and she sees that the stone is rolled away, she already notices that there's something She was probably going to have to ask someone to help her roll away, but she gets there, and the tomb is already open. So that's weird, number one. But she walks in there, and the body is gone. And what does Mary do? She panics. Why does she panic? Why does she panic? Because Jesus' body is supposed to be there. Why is Jesus' body supposed to be there? Because he's dead. And this is the place. This is the place where you go to remember your friend who died. This is the place you go to cry over his grave. This is the place you go to scream to heaven about what happened. Why? Why? Why am I here? Why is this here? What is happening? And when the, if, with the week they had just experienced of Jesus coming into Jerusalem, of Jesus confronting teachers, of this tension within the city building up and, and just building up to this crescendo and finally Jesus being arrested and taken off and tortured. This is just the worst possible thing that could have happened. His body is gone, and she doesn't know where it is. And so what does she do? She runs back, and she says, guys, Jesus' body is gone. They're like, what? And so they run to go see. And they get there, and John sees the empty tomb, and he's kind of like this. Peter does what Peter does, and he runs right into the tomb. He probably hit the back wall first before he stopped. But he sees, and then John comes and looks, and they all, these men who have heard Jesus have know what Jesus is about, they both leave and just leave her there by herself. Now, here's something we need to remember. Not every follower of Jesus was there at the cross that day. As Mike mentioned earlier, most of them scattered to the wind. But Mary and John were. And they saw, they saw the horror of the whole thing. Of the cross and the crucifixion. And now they find the empty tomb and they can't even mourn for him. They can't even mourn for him. The tomb was empty. And I think in some ways it had to represent just how empty they were. Felt. Some of them for upwards of three years had been following this man around. Believed that he was the son of God. Believed that he was going to restore everything and he's dead. And now what do you do? You who've left your family and your friends behind. You who don't know where to go or what to do or even if it's safe. you to leave the house that you're hiding out in, but you go to the tomb. You go to the tomb to remember and to cry, but the tomb is empty, and that is a kind of emptiness I don't ever want to feel. But there had to be an explanation for what happened, right? I mean, there has to be a reason why the tomb is empty. There has to be a reason for the emptiness. So the word empty in the story is replaced by another word, and that word is taken. Taken. Look at what, uh, what happens next. Starting in verse 11. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, "'Woman, why are you crying?' They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Now, I told you just a moment ago, sometimes it takes a while for our brains to catch up. I mean, any of you that have been through any sort of traumatic experience where you've lost someone, like it takes time to adjust to understanding what the new normal and what life is after you go through something as jarring as what they've gone through. And keep in mind, Mary saw him die in the most awful way. So she's left there to cry. And there is only one reason that she can think of that his body is not there. Somebody came and broke into Jesus' tomb and took his body somewhere else. That's why he's not there. Now, there are a couple of really fascinating things that happen next. She looks into the tomb, and who does she see? She sees two angels. Now... We don't know exactly what's going on through her mind, but what does she not do when she sees two angels? React as if they are angels. In fact, she doesn't seem to find it strange at all that there are two weird people sitting in Jesus' tomb that are not him. And they ask her, what's wrong? And what does she say? Well, they've taken my Lord away. I don't know where they've put him. And then she turns around, and there's someone else standing there behind her. And that someone else is who? It's Jesus. And she thinks he is the gardener. She thinks he's the gardener. Now, why does she think he's the gardener? We don't exactly know. Was Jesus just like, did he have like a, Gardener mask on? Was he wearing like a, you know, one of those outfits that gardeners wear? Was did he have shears in his hand? I don't. We don't know why she thought he was the gardener. But here's what's important: she looks at him, and what does she not recognize? Who he is? She doesn't recognize who he is, which tells us more than anything else. This entire scenario: seeing angels, not knowing they're angels; seeing Jesus, not knowing. He's Jesus tells us more than anything else about how what kind of a bad place she was in. She was she was so at the edge of despair, she was so empty. She couldn't see him standing right in front of her. And what does she want? She wants Jesus' body back. Because within her world, the only thing, positive thing that can be done at this point is just to reclaim him. And she even says, well, tell me where his body is and I'll go get him. Like, is Mary just going (laughs) to put him over her shoulder and like carry him? But Sometimes when we find ourselves in the place of the emptiness, what we tend to focus on is what's been taken, what we lost, what should be here but isn't here anymore, what should have happened but didn't happen, what, what we needed Or expected that went away. And Mary cannot see past what she thinks was taken. What is she looking for? A body. Why? Because she wants to have a place to pour out her emptiness, because he's dead. The good news, though, is that just as empty changed to taken, there's another word that gets introduced into the story. And that word is risen. Empty and taken have one formal transformation to make because the meaning of the empty tomb will change one last dramatic time from the place to where Jesus' body rested to the place where Jesus' body was stolen to now something completely different. Verses 16 through 18. She had just spoken to that lovely gardener, and Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, which makes us think what? Don't go anywhere. Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them he had said these things to her. Here's what is most remarkable about just this story, about just this one small thing. We have seen a place a symbol, changed meaning now three times in the span of 18 verses. Its meaning has changed three times in this short little span. And the empty tomb changes from being a symbol of loss and failure to one of complete victory. Do you know why? Because his body is not in there. It is empty. And he has not been taken. He is risen. He is not dead. He is alive. His body was not stolen. He walked out of that sucker. The empty tomb, that small cramped space that was to be a place of mourning, is now something completely different because it becomes a place of celebration. And where before the empty tomb was something they would have hidden from everyone, now they tell everyone about the empty tomb. Go look for his body. I dare you. Because you're not going to find it. The tomb is empty and he is alive. What does this tell us about the cross and resurrection and new life and forgiveness? Well, in the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, God made a dramatic statement about his ability to save and restore. He shows us that he is a God who redeems. And we see that in both the cross and in the empty tomb. The cross, the cross, was basically the worst thing that one human being could imagine to do to another human being. It was the worst of who we are. And we now wear an implement of death and suffering and torture around our necks. The empty tomb should have been a place of fear and despair, and yet it became something different. And I want you to understand, the cross and the tomb never should have been symbols of hope for us. But you know what God did? He redeemed those two awful things. He redeemed those two awful things. Things And by sending Jesus to the, re- to the resurrection by the way of the cross, he has shown us that he is capable of redeeming the worst of us and the worst in us. Because God has already seen us at our worst. God has already seen us do the worst we can to him and to his son. And God sent that son to this place to die for us, that through his resurrection we might have life and he takes this is amazing he takes what we created to destroy to bring new life what we created to destroy what we created to house the dead god turns those into things that when we look at them they mean new life for us This is an important message to everyone who feels lost in their own failures and mistakes, who can't seem to understand how God could love someone like me or you. Do you know what I've done? Do you know where I've been? Do you know what kind of person I am? But God has used the worst of us, the worst in us, to redeem us, and we praise him for that today. Secondly, the resurrection of Jesus is a reorienting event. That means that once you encounter the resurrected Jesus, whatever direction you were going, it changes. Because he's not dead, he is alive. And all the disciples would have chosen for things to go back to normal, back to how they were before this happened, but that's because they didn't understand that Jesus was alive yet. And they were asking all the wrong questions. Can I go home? Is there still work for me to do? Who will accept me? And then they see the resurrected Jesus and the world shifts. The world shifts. And it's no longer about can I go back home and will someone accept me? Instead it becomes we get to take the resurrected Jesus out into the world and change the world. How do you you get from A to B like that? The resurrected Lord, the resurrected Jesus changes everything. He changes everything. And when we talk a lot in this church about how the love of God in Jesus changes everything, I want you to understand this morning that as we celebrate the risen Lord, when we say that Jesus changes everything. What we say is that Jesus changes what death means. He changes what life means. He rewrites the definition of impossible. There are words that he erases from our vocabulary entirely. And in the place of all of these things, there are new words that go out. Those words, he was dead, but now he lives. He is risen, and through his rising, guess what? You get to rise also. The burdens that you carry and the things that would hold you down your failures, the things that separate you, those things don't define you anymore. Do you know why? Because you will rise. You think you're unlovable and that there's no one around that will care for you or give you you think you're unknown you think that there's no one who understands you but the cross and the empty tomb they tell us that that's not really the story in fact they tell us that someone knows us better than we know ourselves and even seeing how we are still died and rose and therefore we are not defined by those things that others would use to hold us down or keep us back we will rise. And in a world where death is the end of the story, Jesus says death is not the end of the story. It's only the beginning of the story. Because he is risen. He is risen. Let's pray. God, we are grateful for the fact that You know us, and you don't just choose to tolerate us. God, you've chosen to love us, and not in a passive way, God, but in a dynamic, amazing way. God, you have come to our place of hurt and failure and sickness and loss, and you have rewritten the book so that, God, even the worst that can happen to us in this world is not the end because you have risen. And you promise us, God, that we too will rise. We will rise above the things that keep us separated from God. We will rise above the failures and fears that so often define us and hold us back. We will rise above life and experience something new with you. Thank you for doing what we couldn't for ourselves. And God, thank you for offering us the opportunity to rise. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you want any uh, prayers or encouragement this morning, you want to know this God who loves you in a pretty amazing way, uh, we invite you to come forward as we stand and sing this song together.